This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. The Crop Circle Gal, a filmmaker Patty Greer, is here to talk about attempts to suppress the work of Crop Circle researcher, the late Lefty Levengood, and the attempts to silence her own work on crop circles. Uh, we'll also discuss Levengood's research into the super seeds found inside crop circles and how they could feed the world. A programming note, Albert and Ryan are off tonight. There is no live YouTube stream. The audio for this show, however, will be posted to the YouTube channel in a few days. Uh, the live YouTube stream resumes next week. And uh, just a reminder, get on up to my live events page at strangeplanet.ca. A couple of things going on this summer. I'm going to be moderating a roundtable on UFO Disclosure at the Alien Cosmic Expo coming up on Sunday, June 24th. The conference runs June 22, 23, 24 at the Toronto Airport Marriott Hotel. You can go to my live events page again at strangeplanet.ca or uh, to order tickets, more information at aliencosmicexpo.com. Stanton Friedman, Richard Dolan, Linda Moulton Howe, Grant Cameron, and others will be there. Uh, Linda will be here on uh, The Conspiracy Show in a few weeks. And also, uh, Victor Vigiani, Stu Bundy from MUFON, and Chris Stiles, co-author of Dark Object. Uh, this is a story of Canada's Roswell, the Shag Harbor UFO incident. They'll be here uh, next week. So let's talk crop circles and the latest research. Patty Greer is a prominent UFO filmmaker who produced eight full-feature UFO films in 10 years that received eight prestigious awards, including five EBEs at the International UFO Congress Convention. Her films offer unrelenting evidence and explosive footage of crop circles being produced by spinning plasma balls of light. Greer's conclusion after producing eight UFO films and working closely with Penny Kelly, the real lab partner of the great scientist William Levengood for the final 16 years of his life, is that crop circles are produced by counter-rotating spinning plasma vortices coming out of the earth not from the sky. Hey, Patty, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I am great, Richard. It's nice to be on again. Jeez, where to begin? So much uh, so much news. I want to start with 
you know, we've sort of talked around this, but we haven't really talked about it. And, you know, you, you have been targeted. Uh, you have had so many, you've had websites hacked, you've had your films basically held hostage. What is it about what you're trying to do that makes you so dangerous? <laughs> makes me so dangerous. Well, in the eyes of who's it, ever doing this. Why do they why do they feel threatened by you, I guess is what I'm asking. I believe I'm the only person that's ever come clean a hundred percent about William Levengood and Penny Kelly's work in the lab on crop circles. And nobody else for some some reason is given the straight story, which I think is their job. And I came into the field, literally into the crop circle fields, completely green. I wasn't into ufology. I was never a researcher of anything of the kind, secret space, crop circles, aliens. It wasn't on my plate. I was kind of thrown into it without knowing that I was going to be the one that they picked to bring Lefty's work forward. And Lefty is what we call William Levengood, uh, what they called him in the lab, good friends called him. But nobody ever heard the name Penny Kelly. So she was this great secret partner of William Levengood for the last 16 years of his life that nobody knew about because they didn't want the science of crop circles getting out to the public. Okay, we'll talk about super seeds and and things like that in a moment, but I just want to, if you don't mind, I want to delve in a little further because I think the the suppression, you know, it's funny that the disclosure movement's always talking about the government suppressing this and the government suppressing that and what does this breakaway civilization have when why are they keeping this technology from us? And yet it would appear that some of the people at the very top of the so-called disclosure movement are also in on the suppression. Absolutely, without a doubt. It is the biggest acting field you could imagine. And I used to love everyone. I mean, I toured with all the big names for the last 10 years, and I started realizing there was fish. (laughs) It just smelled like fish backstage. And it's not like I was looking to unfriend anyone, but uh, there's a difference in people that are into it for the fact that they're actually contactees and they want to talk about it. And then there's those who actually were mind controlled as children. And I don't think they even know what they're doing. I think they might actually believe what they're saying. I don't think it's even on purpose, but that particular group, which is, yeah, a lot of the people at the top, I call the field egophology. And again, I don't think it's their fault. I think once you get wound up in this clan energy and you're like broskies with all the big names and you're on ancient aliens and coast to coast all the time and you're a regular here. And um, But what's happening now, and it's a title of a show I dropped yesterday with Alfred Lambermont Weber. He said, what's your title? And I said, Alfred, it's this. Everything that people need to know is in plain sight, but nobody appears to be looking. That's the problem. People don't want to see David Wilcock introduce Corey Good as this is my friend who was in a my lab situation from six to 36 years old. He actually introduced him at the L.A. 
Conscious Life Expo or something. But that's how David introduced him. I watched the video. My friend is a MyLab Muppet, which is a mind-controlled puppet. I don't think he can help himself. And then there's Richard Dolan. He was about to expose Corey Good because Corey accidentally in his, shall we say, memorizing script would accidentally drop words like monetization instead of militarization. And they don't really coincide, but it was like an oops. So, you know, even Richard went and did 10 shows for the TV And at the end of laying down 10 shows, he had to redo the last four because he outed Corey Good. And he also said too much about the stuff in America that they don't want people to know. And he really was angry when I saw him that he had to redo four shows. And sure enough, he did it. And bang, he got another series. So it's in your face. Right. Well, there's no question that it has become, when I say it... This whole arena, ufology, it's become an industry, a bit of a circus, right? There's no data. It's just people up there telling stories. And I'm a time traveler and I, w- I was on Mars and all of this sort of thing. And it is it is sort of spun out of control and undermined the whole credibility just when it seemed like some inroads were starting to be made. Uh, it's a serious matter, but I don't understand why... They're working at cross purposes with, with you. I mean, you're both interested in finding the truth, I would hope. I told the truth. Bottom line, mm. I didn't come in with an agenda. I don't work from a place of ego, ego, look at me. I want to be famous. None of that was, you know, anything that I came in with. I didn't research crop circles, luckily, so that I wasn't misinformed by the two most famous I'm sorry to say charlatans, Colin Andrews and Nancy Talbot. And I I haven't called names out until now because it is so in your face, but people have got to start realizing it is Colin Andrews. He was paid by Rockefeller to create this lie about the Oliver's Castle footage of two balls of light laying a crop circle down in seconds. And... I'm the only one that for some reason found a binary code between the two balls of light and I know how it happened and it happened in front of an innocent editor who will still say today it was one of the most profound moments of his editing career. We finished my first movie called The Wake Up Call. Anybody listening? And I was like, oh wow. What an easy thing to make a movie. This is crazy. 77 minutes. How perfect. My favorite number. Let's hit it to render. Let's go out on the deck, get some air, and then come in and watch it like a movie. So we start to walk out on the deck, and I looked over my shoulder at the gear that was supposedly going to calm, cool down, and everything had been shut off after the render. And um, there was this big blue orb on the monitor. And I looked at the editor and I said, oh, you didn't unplug the monitor or turn it off. And he said, "Uh, yeah, I did. And I said, what's that blue orb on it? So we both walked up to the monitor and I'm staring at this gorgeous orb with sacred geometry and all these patterns inside. And I looked carefully and I know orbs and I recognize some from others. And I said, that dang thing is not in the movie. Where did that come from? 
And all of a sudden, all of the physical sensations that happened to me when I walk in a crop circle that's real, most of them were, is that the hair went up on my arms, little teeny girl hairs, tingles, top of my head, chills, goosebumps, head to toe. And it was like, oh my God, they're in the house. Now, how can I say this to an editor? So he's looking at me and he sees me slightly shape shift, I imagine, because the words were, you look weird. (laughs) So, I mean, it wasn't like, you don't look pretty. It was, you look weird. And I could tell because I had complete goosebumps everywhere. And I said, we're not alone. Turn the gear back on. Well, I thought we were going to take, no, we're not taking a break. Hit the gear back up. So we lit it all back up. I said, show me the Oliver's Castle footage. So we looked at it and that little voice that William Levengood used to always talk about in the lab when he found the most miraculous miracles, it was that little voice in his head, not the crazy voice, but the little voice of wisdom, that telepathic wonder between us and the other worlds. And there it was. And I look at the editor and I said, reverse the footage. He says, why? I said, I don't know, do it. So we reversed it, we looked at it, and I said, slow it down. He says, how slow? I said, I have no idea, 30%. Literally like that, it was in the same breath. And we looked at each other and I was like, I'm not sure what's happening, but do it. So we slowed it down, we reversed it, 30% slower, and bang, there it was. I yelled, stop, lock, screenshot that frame, holy crap. What is that between those two balls of light in the Oliver's Castle 1996 crop circle footage right before those two balls of light laid the crop circle down? There was a binary code and I grabbed it. Now, nobody else has ever seen it. And the interesting thing is that I ended my first film with the binary code and I was like, oh, Oh my God, thank God I'm so green. I had no idea, but this is really real. So that's the end of my first movie, and nobody noticed. I had no acknowledgement, even from the real crappies in England. They were like, nobody said anything. So then I made movie two, which is about, um, I interviewed 29 of the greatest researchers in 2008 that used to be alive at the International UFO Congress Convention. I interviewed uh, Dr. Roger Lear, Mm -hmm. Jim Mars, Wendell Stevens, who gifted me the largest UFO archive in the world of photos he gave to me freely. How do these people know to be so nice to me? (laughs) But they had seen my first movie show, The Wake Up Call. Anybody listening? Question mark. Those guys, the real deal, the four-star generals that were in the plane or flying the plane when they saw the ET outside the window or the craft or the moving balls of light, these are the real guys. And unfortunately, most of them have been mm, killed or they died of natural causes. But there's too many good guys that are gone now. Um... Cynthia Crawford, Dolores Cannon. Mm -hmm. Some of them may be old age, but the 29 that are in my film, I gotta tell you, at least a third of them are gone now. And those were the best interviews. And not a lot of people got those same stories because 
I was the new girl. I was the fresh face. And I was asking really innocent questions that people want to know. So that was movie two. It's called UFOs, ETs, Abductees, and Brilliant Minds. And, I mean, people were making my toes curl because Wendell Stevens back then knew about all the popes and the black popes and the real history. Jim Mars always knew the real history. So the people that were really coming forth with, in my opinion, the best information of all time, most of them are gone or they're definitely not allowed to speak anymore. All right. So, Let me jump in here, Patty, because we're going to take a, a, a quick time out, come back and continue to delve into crop circles. We'll talk about the work of William Levengood and we'll talk about super seeds and how the the effect that's going on inside crop circles could infect could in effect feed the world. Back with more with Patty Greer right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. We are back with Patty Greer. Uh, Before we move forward, let's explain what this plasma vortex theory is all about. Absolutely. This is the truth about how crop circles are happening, and I don't know if anybody's talked about it. But William Levengood and Penny Kelly discovered in the lab, what I want to say while we're talking about this, my website is cropcirclefilms.com. I have photos on every page, beautiful archive images of my favorite crop circles, the wheat, the nodes, all these things we're about to talk about on my website in photos, cropcirclefilms.com. And as you look at a photo of a crop circle, needless to say, it's going to tell you a heck of a lot more than somebody talking about it. So as you're looking at it, you're going to really get the full picture. So Lefty and Penny in the lab received hundreds and thousands after a while of pieces of wheat, corn, barley, oats, all kinds of crop circle Um, plants and they received the stalks in bundles from different crop circles in different countries different seasons like early in May we get the canola in southern England and then it moves into wheat corn and barley and you know it's swaying and it's green and it's fresh and beautiful and supple now those when they lay down sometimes they start to rise back up but then you get July June July August where they start to go brown and they get brittle now when you get an August crop circle made in brittle wheat and it's not all broken where it bends that's going to take your breath away because how do they do that to hundreds of thousands of pieces of wheat? And we're not talking about a 10 by 10 crop circle. We're talking about acres of crop right. laid down. And they're not always circles. There's unbelievable sacred geometry. There's binary code crop circles. There's all kinds of different messages coming to humanity. And 
They're coming naturally from the earth. So here we go with the science. People want to say, oh, Doug and Dave, boards and ropes, or Team Satan, boards and ropes. Or they're going to say the military with their satellite lasers. BS. I mean, yeah, there's a few, but so what? The real technology that William and uh, Penny discovered by measuring the magnetics of the wheat in the center, 10 feet out, 20 feet out, 30 feet out, and then out to the very edge of the formation, they started to realize that the wheat was thrown down in one fell swoop to lay a circle. And the energetics actually got stronger on the outside of the circle. Now, a lot of people sat on the outside, but I was always drawn to the middle. I put my head down and closed my eyes, and I didn't talk to anybody while I was in the crop circles. And so by measuring the magnetics and looking at the changes of the nodes, they realized that it was, in fact, a vortex of spinning plasma that laid those formations down. And then they realized that there were two vortices working in the field at the same time. And then they discovered further that these vortices of spinning plasma frequencies had a variety of different frequencies with distinct boundary conditions. Some of them were microwave, which was probably more military imposed, and the wheat would die the field would die. But then they had a lot more higher frequencies and they realized that they were definitely coming out of the earth. And they realized that almost 96 or 7% of them were sitting over an aquifer of water, as well as high 90 percentages were always located on the map on a ley line. And a ley line is a direct line between two sacred sites. So you've got high spiritual energy, you've got water, and you've got earth energy. A lot of limestone, too, isn't there? Uh, mm, no? I don't think limestone, it's chalk. Chalk, right, right, chalk. What Thank we you. have is lint covered with chalk. And I'm glad you brought that up because I used to bring home, when I was in the formations, I'd always clip um, wheat from the very center of the formation and I would always grab the stones that I found which I've never seen anywhere else on earth and what they are is exploded chalk cover, uh, exploded um, bits of flint covered in chalk and the flint came in like a tan in a blue in a gray in a black so there was all these different varieties of a very hard stone but they were all broken all exploded and all of them on the exterior side were covered in chalk so that's what appeared to be under all of the ones that i went in in wiltshire england which is the epicenter due to the fact it's sitting over the largest aquifer in the world and if you look at a map of ley lines in southern england it looks like a spider web there are more sacred sites there than anywhere else on earth what about the weren't you also finding or or left 11 good was finding was it iron molecules around the the uh, the crops Brilliant, yes. I'm glad you mentioned it. They actually found leaves, the samples of leaves that were sent to the lab were really hard, and it was an orange-colored 
felt like metal to them. And when they peeled it off the leaf or the stalk or the seeds, the tops of the plant, it actually held the pattern of the plant, the veins of the leaf. So whatever it was, it had to be molten when it landed on the leaf to mold to it. And it turns out it was iron oxide, which has to be 1200 degrees Fahrenheit to be molten. Now, how does something 1200 degrees Fahrenheit blow over a field of wheat and not catch it on fire, not burn the wheat, whereas instead it just landed on it and held the plant? So now we've got this question of what is all this heat and where does it come from? Well, when you start spinning plasma, in counter-rotating vortices, it goes faster and faster and faster. You're going to get some big hot heat. And when Penny discovered, uh, she she describes this in my final film, which I thought was final, but now I have to remake it because the masters got hit. Uh, it's called Crop Circle Diaries. And that's the one I think, uh, I'm just going to say the cabal was most scared that I would make because it's the entire Penny and Lefty story and how they got rid of Lefty, um, how they hid his work all these years, how they made him just not even want to be here. But what they had was the fact that plants are made of cellulose, Penny says, which is ultimately a form of plastic. And when you put boiling water in plastic, you're going to change its form. So something hit the wheat, which was the spinning plasma fields. It heated the stalks so much that all of them blew their nodes out. So now we've got, and a node is the elbow. As the stalk goes up, every five, six inches, there's a support in the plant. And then it grows another five, six inches, and it grows like an elbow support in the plant. Right. Well, these elbows are called nodes. And when they got all these samples at the lab, the nodes had all been exploded or burn and blown, which means it exploded and then there was a black mark and it blew open. Any idea so that, what t kind of temperature we'd be talking about? Well, we know that it was more than 1,200 degrees to get the iron ore there. All right, I didn't hear wow. temperature for the plants. But we also had elongated nodes. So the heat even stretched the node and turned it into two nodes with like a half inch between them. So what we have here is biophysical evidence. And you'll see a lot of those photos on my website. Again, cropcirclefilms.com. And in all my movies, I'm showing the nodes because that is why they're so upset with me. All I am is evidence. I didn't study Nancy Talbot or Colin Andrews or any of the others that give you a certain amount, but then they have to mix it up with enough to confuse you and muddy your brain so that you're going, uh, 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 I don't know. But I didn't have any of that. I came in green. I'm still green today. Yeah. I don't to see their stuff i want to say patty greer has been in more than 100 crop circles i'm going to tell you what i saw what i felt and then after six movies and six awards i still didn't know the science it wasn't until lefty died in 2013 that he was stirring in the background and penny says he was so active after he left that she'd see books fall off shelves or she'd see silverware move on the table she saw the most bizarre things and she'd just laugh and go oh lefty you're so funny so a year after he dies 
he brought me and Penny together, and I'm positive it was him. And it was in Canada. Hmm. No, it was in Michigan. It was in Michigan, uh, right below you. Sorry. Right, right. It was an event I did, and um, they brought me out. And at the end of the first day of speaking, a gentleman came up and he asked me if I'd go for a ride with him. He had somebody he wanted me to meet. I didn't know him, so I said, perhaps tomorrow night after I ask around who you are. Sure enough, he took me to Penny Kelly's house, but he didn't tell me who she was. So we're there four hours. We're talking about everything but crop circles. And I, it's two in the morning. I said, you know, you're really nice, but I got to go. Stan, please drive me back to the hotel because I have to speak in the morning. So we get back to the, oh, as I'm leaving, she says, well, let me give you one of my books. I said, oh, great. Let me give you one of my movies. So we, you know, we did our trade and I looked at her book, but I didn't read who wrote it. And I went through the pages and I was like, oh, my God crop circle nodes what are they doing in your book and she looks at him and she looks at me and she goes you didn't tell her who i am now it's two in the morning richard i'd been there four hours hmm. and i was like oh who are you and she said i was the real partner of pen of uh, william levengood for the last 16 years of his life and i was like wait a minute what about nancy talbot and she just laughed she goes she was expelled from the lab last century, like 1998, 99, for bad behavior. Lefty never spoke with her again. Well, interesting that Lefty died and Burke died of BLT. She's the only one still standing. Well, that appears to be what's going on in the field today. Sorry to say it, but that's what's happening. Well, what happened to so, Lefty? I mean, I know they discredited him and he, during his Ph.D., uh, hearing they 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 discre- tried to, to discredit him, but but how did he end up dying? Is it suspicious? You know, I can't say if it was because I wasn't there then, and I didn't know to ask that question. Hmm. I didn't know, so I I haven't. But that's a very interesting question. Well, was he elderly? You know, he, he was elderly, and he had a very funny habit, which which is this little ditty at the end of Crop Circle Diaries. Penny comes back in and she goes, you know, Lefty had a funny habit, which was he had the same meal every night for dinner. He made spaghetti once a week, the sauce. Right. And then every night he would just make a salad to go with it. But the guy never ate anything but spaghetti, sauce, and a salad for 50 years. Oh, my God. I mean. Well, that's what happens yeah. when you're, you're dedicated to your work. You don't have time to think about it, that other stuff. That's exactly what he said, Richard. He said, I don't have time for that crap. I need to do my work. And he really did. Lefty, beyond a shadow of a doubt, knew more than anybody else. He was studying plants and soil for more than 50 years. But when he moved into crop circle research in the 1980s, everything else went to the side because he saw those nodes. He saw those blown nodes, expanded nodes. That was it. He said, I've got to get to the bottom of this. So he takes these samples into the lab and he's looking at the seeds and he's going, okay, there's something going on here. And he's testing the seeds and, you know, they're, they're strong and they're healthy, but he didn't find the miracle until all of a sudden he was cleaning his desk one day. All right. Cliffhanger. Cliffhanger. We're going to take a time out. Hold on, Patty. Crop circle gal, crop circle filmmaker, extraordinaire, award-winning filmmaker, Patty Greer. Stay with us. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Patty Greer. We were talking about uh, we were talking about William Levengood in the lab, examining these uh, seeds that had come from crops inside a crop circle. Uh, so, w- what did he discover? What he discovered by accident, but it wasn't. It was that little voice again that we talk about. And Lefty taught me about the little voice from the other side. He taught me, but. Um, What he discovered was that when he was cleaning his desk, there was this little envelope of old seeds from a crop circle that he had lost, and they were in a stack of papers. So he pulls out the paper, and he goes, ugh, the seeds are shriveled, I lost them. So he starts to throw them in the trash, and that little boy said, "Mm mm-mm, nope, don't do that. So he, he pulled it literally out of the trash, and he looked at the seeds, and they were all shriveled, and he said, no proper seedsman would do anything with these seeds. But the little voice said, stick him in the germination paper and stick him in the germination tank. So he did. And they grew like gangbusters. What he realized was that when he worked with consciousness and let the seeds take a few months to have no light, no water, no attention, They were like fighting that little seed of life inside the seed was fighting to survive. And when he took it out and they gave it conscious attention, water in the germination tank, the seeds exploded and they grew 30 to 400 percent more food and biofuel experiment after experiment after experiment nonstop. He kept doing it over and over, and these plants not only grew more food and biofuel per seed, but they had 75% consistently more nutrition per plant. Plus, they couldn't kill them. Too hot, too cold, too wet, too dry. The seeds survived. So now we've got seeds that can grow in Siberia and the heat of Mexican summer. We've got super seeds happening in crop circles. Non-GMO I, super seeds. Not very non-GMO and mm. very non-toxic. But I forgot to get to the punchline of how Lefty brought me and Penny together. After she and I realized who she was, I looked at her at 2.15 in the morning and I said, I can't believe I was here four hours. You have to invite me back. So she said, well, interesting you would ask. Yeah. Uh, Lefty's wake a year after his death, is next month. We'd like you to come. So I was like, I'll be there. So I had to drive all the way back to Colorado, 1,500 miles, and I drove right back to Michigan a month later to stay with Penny for three days, go to the wake, and um, 
I said, my gosh, thank you. I'd love to. So it's now, you know, late, late. And I said, Stan, please take me back to the hotel. Penny, it's amazing to meet you. I can't wait to spend more time. So I get back to the hotel and this gig that I had, I was the keynote and there were psychics and healers and everybody had a tent. And two of the main psychics were watching me walk up to the door of the hotel and they're laughing. And I said, what's so funny? And she said, there's this lovely man next to you. And I thought, Stan followed me and I'm looking left and right and nobody's there. She said, he's tall, silver hair, silver goatee. Do you know who he is? And I said, I have no idea. She said, he has a message and I need to give it to you. And I said, okay. She said, he wants you to know that he orchestrated this and he's really glad it worked. And I said, ladies, I'll be right back. And I wailed through the parking lot, and I'm throwing my hands all over the place to get Stan's attention. Luckily, he looked in the rear view, backed up, and I'm now panting to death. And I said, what did, what did Lefty look like? And he said, uh, tall, silver hair, silver goatee. Why? And I said, oh, my God, he's here. <laughs> and he told those ladies that he orchestrated this. And Stan's just staring at me totally calm. And I said, why are you calm? I'm freaking out. He said, I did all of Penny's intuition courses. We expect these things. And he drove away. And ah. that's how I met William Levengood. <laughs> in the flesh or in the spirit. All right, we'll uh, take another time out. We'll talk more about how uh, super seeds can feed the world. And also uh, something else I know that's very near and dear to your heart. And um, I know you're sort of... Uh, sort of in communication with some of the scientists behind it. Are you good for that as well? I'd love to talk about C60, yes. All right, let's do that. On the other side, Patty Greer, Crop Circle Filmmaker. Back with more in a moment. Keeping a watchful eye on the new world order. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Patty Greer stays with us, and uh, let's give them the website again, Patty, where they can watch your uh, watch your films. You can watch films. You can buy DVDs. You can buy the entire collection of eight movies that won a ton of awards and four soundtracks in one box for half price. CropCircleFilms.com. I also have a YouTube page with tons of free videos as well as trailers to all the movies, and then you'll want to pop over to the website and uh, you can stream them for five bucks for a week, or like I said, I can send you movies. But I wanna say one more thing about meeting Lefty when he was on the other side. Not only did he bring Penny and I together, but when I drove across the country to come back to stay at her house, I was there, like I said, planned on three days, stayed for three weeks, because the very first night I got there, I lay down in the guest room and I saw now, this time I had looked his face up. I knew what he looked like. I saw him walk through the door. The door was closed. I watched him walk through the wooden door. He came up to my bed. I totally pulled the covers up to my nose. <laughs> and I 
I was pretty nervous. And he looked right at me and I said, I know who you are. And he said, I did orchestrate this and I'm really glad you're here. And I could probably hear my teeth going, (laughs) but it really freaked me out. So for me, none of this is some mystery because I keep seeing these things with my own eyes, as well as all of my films are me filming by myself with gear that I couldn't tell you anything other than lens and door that opens. And I spin these things. I have no training But I did film most of my eight movies. And most of the music is my original music from the last 33 years before I started making films. So I'm starting to realize this was really planned. This was really a layout, you know, of my whole life prepping me for this. Um, So I want to talk about how I got into the C60 because this is part of the unfortunate thing going on at UFO conferences now. I um, I was a speaker at this event. I don't want to say its name. And I was a speaker the first year. I had a great audience. The second year, really great audience. But last year, actually in 2016, I was uh, the only girl sitting on the David Wilcock panel with all the, shall we say, rock stars of ufology. I was the girl in the middle. And the panel was great, and David is doing his pacing back and forth, wonderful intro. Bang! I got hit with a weapon. Hmm. Right above my heart. I was like, what the heck was that? And it, it, it threw me for a loop. Here I am on stage, there's cameras, there's lights. I got hit. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm imagining this. And I, uh, I was really alarmed. And I knew that there was a man in the audience that is very upset with my work getting out and um there he was and i could see him and i was like "Uh uh-uh i am totally imagining it and he pointed something that looked like a cell phone and bang i got hit again excuse the volume but that's how it hit me it was just like shock and at that point i got up and left the stage i didn't even care that there were thousands of people. I knew that I was sitting in a target range as the girl on the stage on the David Wilcock panel, everybody's watching and I got hit twice. And he missed my heart, thank God, or I wouldn't be here today, but he was aiming. And I got up and left the stage and I went back and I yelled at security and the owner of the event, one of the two. And I said, I told you yesterday, if I can see this guy, he's too close. And I got hit. And they were like, well, you know, anyway, punchline was that was 2016. And all of a sudden, and I'm just going to say this on your show, he was surrounded by three women that were powerful psychics. And all of a sudden I could see one had a camera locked on him. And the three of them had actually, I learned later, all independently surrounded him with a mirrored wall. But when I saw the three of them, I was like, actually, I saw two of them. I didn't even know who the third was, but I knew there had to be one. And it's not like I'm some woo-woo witch. I'm not. But I do honor psychic women, and I knew two of them had literally parked right on the left of him. And the other girl was four seats away from him. She came out of nowhere, but she knew that I left the stage because I got hit. And they filmed him. And did you and, go back um, and did you go back and speak or did you just leave? I, I sat back down on the stage, but it wasn't until a very interesting thing happened. She's glaring at him. She put the camera down. She started to rub the side of her head. And I'm like, oh, my God, what are you doing? 
and he's whispered to his girlfriend looking thing something and then she started to massage his head and I went oh my god she gave him a migraine <laughs> and then I saw him pour the water bottle on his ugly bald head and I was like oh my god she gave him a migraine and he whispered again and they got up and left and they handed me the mic so yeah but last year was really bad 2017 I was invited to speak again, but about two months before the gig, I got a call from the other owner and she said, I um, I have three speakers too many and I'm going to have to not have you speak. And I was like, what? Are they really controlling your event? And she said, well, no, I, I'm just, anyway. Punchline was she tried to get me not to come. And I said, I'm on your posters. I've been promoting. Don't screw with me after getting hit last year. What the heck's going on with you? I didn't realize she was already a Muppet, which is a mind-controlled puppet. She was wiped. She was no longer the same person at all. And ultimately, she got fired. She was the overall manager for 10 years boom as soon as she started working with these people they kicked her out and the event is see, no longer there see i i'm i guess i'm not very bright i still don't understand entirely because you know they've got their thing they're looking at lights in the sky they're trying to figure out you know what kind of are they back engineering their technology and who has it and so forth that's fine that's interesting you're almost in an entirely i mean i know there's some crossover here but i mean you're not just you're not focusing on the lights in the sky here this is it's almost in a separate arena i don't get it i'm the only one that told the truth about lefty and penny i'm the only one that proved that they're coming out of the earth and counter-rotating yeah. vortices spinning plasma it's happening okay. it's real so it's too much evidence no i don't so doubt, doubt i don't and i'm not doubting it's real i'm just trying to climb inside yeah. their head and understand you know why they're so threatened so is it that that because they have their narrative of the, of the way crop circles are formed and it all has to do with ets and you're coming at it from an entirely different direction plus uh i mean you know, they're all about, hey, we've got to share the, this suppressed technology and it's fr it's all about free energy and, and all of this stuff. I mean, again, you're sort of on the same track, I would think, there. You're saying, hey, I've got a way we can feed the feed the world. Right. But I'm also showing that a lot of crop circles, when you spin a mandala crop circle, it's a propulsion technology. I'm also showing that there's three different crop circles that are an exact schematic of free energy technologies. The crop circles are giving us the information that we need, and what they want is everybody to believe that those balls of light are fake. I'm the only one that said, heck no, I didn't listen to that guy lie about it with the Nippon TV team and all the money they seem to have spent. No, I came at it and I said, this is what I found. It came to me in a, you know, in a voice. So in 2017, I did come and they know I don't do mornings. So they put me on Sunday morning at 732 in the biggest room trying to make me look like I can't get an audience. Terrible time. The place was packed. I asked everybody to get up and dance because they made the room 50 degrees. Everybody walked in and said, what? So I said, everybody up and dance. We heated the room. We blew it up. I had a line around the block of people that wanted movies because everybody's hungry to know what's going on. Bang, I got hit. I got hit so bad, Richard, in 2017. But they're doing really bad directed energy weapons that nobody can decide if it happened at the gig other than me, because when I got hit, I was on my way to the airport and all of a sudden I couldn't walk. 
I became paralyzed two days after that horrible desert event. I couldn't walk to get to the gate. I got on the plane. When I tried to get off the plane, I couldn't walk. They had to take me in a wheelchair to the gate. They had to take me in a wheelchair to the baggage claim. They had to take me in a god dang wheelchair to my car. And I came home and I'm like, I don't do doctors. I don't believe in them either anymore because it's all corrupt. So I luckily, thank you lefty, thank you goddess, whatever, I meet this guy, this scientist who came up to my house because I was, the house was getting hit after Crop Circle Diaries won best film and people's choice at the big UFO Congress um, last year, 2017. I got these great awards. I come home, bang, they hit my cabin in the woods. I couldn't sleep, I couldn't eat, I moved out. So I come back and I, I called around, I said, who's the scientist that can help me figure out if I'm if it, my house is getting hit and they send me this cool guy named Ken so he comes up to the house with these little devices and we figured out yeah it, they had cleared it a little bit but he said boy you're really in rough shape why don't you try this oil that I make and I looked at it and it's called C60 purple power and I said oh Oh, yeah, thanks, but somebody offered me some C60 in olive oil last year, and I think it's still in my cabinet. It didn't do anything for me. And he goes, well, I don't use olive oil. I use a more, a higher frequency of oil, a much cleaner oil, plus I'm doing really high percentage C60. And C60 is the carbon-60 molecule. It's um, an absolute miracle. And in 19, I think it was 85, these three scientists actually discovered it and in 1990 10 years later six or five they got the nobel prize for discovering carbon 60 but they didn't elaborate on why why it's healing people why it's healing animals why it's healing plants carbon 60 is this brilliant molecule now we've got a few scientists that are mixing it into oils but the best oils in my opinion are mixing it in coconut oil or avocado oil hmm. and the only guy doing that is c60 purple power and he's in my house he gives me a free bottle and it's not exactly cheap how do you but, do, do you drink it is it a topical what do you do with it well i rub it all over my body and i take it on a spoon in the morning hmm. actually i used to take it on a spoon now i chug it like he does um i watched him you know he just basically drinks it so you know i've upped my game because i've been doing it almost a year but literally richard 30 minutes later i got up to get a drink of water and i was like uh-uh no way my hips i'm walking what the stuff cured me like in 30 minutes from i'd say ridiculous agony and so i started taking it every day every day my brain started to clear up I started going public about getting hit by a weapon. And I was like, did anybody else get hit? And all these people wrote on Facebook. And all these people started writing me letters. And I was like, oh my God, a lot of people got hit. And then the next conference, I think they were testing a different frequency because then all these people had flu-like symptoms. Three people died. Listen, we, we're out of time, but we're going to have to continue this discussion. You know what we'll do? We'll carry this on over. We'll, we'll get you on my podcast and we'll just can continue this conversation. It's really important. It's never been more important because people are getting hurt. I have dozens of reports from people that wrote to me that got hurt at UFO events. But for me, because I got hit twice, I'm not going. 
So the only shows I'm doing are people like you and Coast to Coast. I will do Skype, I will do Zoom, but I'm not showing up at any of these events and going on the shooting gallery because I love my body, I love my life, and thank God for C60 Purple Power because that brought me back and I'm still doing it every day. And uh, I'm sending you a bottle because I want you to get rid of that whole shelf of supplements. <laughs> if you're over 40, and I know you are, you are going to be blown away. All right. I, every, I did the testimonials on the website, which is c60purplepower.com. Purple like the color, power like bam. Uh, you guys will be blown away by the results. Richard, I love you. I thank you for the work you do, and I hope you'll put me on Coast to Coast one of these days soon. Absolutely. All right. We'll talk soon. All the best. Thank you. You too. Dennis Stone, curator of America's Stonehenge, is next on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station here in Toronto, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM. Hi to those of you catching us on one of our affiliate stations uh, throughout North America, the podcast, of course, which is everywhere, the Zoomer Radio app, the Conspiracy Show app, uh, both free downloads, the YouTube channel, and please visit and hit the red sub button. Uh, those of you in the live YouTube chat uh, who join me without fail every week, uh, incidentally, no live YouTube stream tonight, uh, though that will be back next week. So however and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. America's Stonehenge this hour. But first, a couple of things. If you love rock and roll and mysteries and the paranormal, I invite you to check out my podcast, The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone, which is part of the Jericho Network in Westwood One. New episodes drop every Wednesday at midnight, 12 a.m. Eastern. And, uh, of course, my other podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited. Three new episodes every week. They drop Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and you can listen and subscribe at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. Now, they call it America Stonehenge. It's a weird one-acre grouping of rock uh, configurations named for the mysterious formation on England's Salisbury Plain. It's drawn believers who say it's thousands or more years old, and skeptics who say the evidence suggests it was the work of a 19th century shoemaker. Dennis Stone grew up at America Stonehenge and has been involved with the site for the last 55 years and has met a variety of researchers. He's also a full-time airline captain. He's traveled extensively around the world to other ancient sites in Europe and North America. He's been on numerous television and radio shows since 1970. And when he's not flying, Dennis spends his time at America Stonehenge, where his wife, Pat, manages the day-to-day -day operations of the site. Uh, their son, Kelsey, who is an engineer has taken an interest in ongoing research. Dennis Stone, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Oh, fine. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for having me on. You're down in Salem, New Hampshire. Let me ask you, the, uh, they call it America Stonehenge, but it really, it bears 
virtually no resemblance to this, the great Stonehenge that we think of on the Salisbury Plain in England. How did it get the name America's Stonehenge? So it goes back to uh, 1959. It was the second year that we were open to the public. And the Saturday evening posted a feature story on us um, for the month, I think of June, I think it was. We still have the original uh, uh, magazine. And in the article, they referred to us as Stonehenge of America because of the very large slabs of stone that was used in the construction. Um, but it wasn't until 1967 that we actually began work on the astronomical alignments. And that really what, what really ties us together with Stonehenge is a function of the site. Uh, it's aligned astronomically with the sun, moon, and stars, uh, quite similar to Stonehenge in England, but the form is quite different than Stonehenge. That is correct. We'll, we'll, we'll get into mm-hmm. how the uh, the equinox uh, aligned to the the, the big stones uh, on on the property, but let's sort of walk us through. Now these these are stones, unlike a stone circle, which is Stonehenge and others. These stones are kind of scattered throughout the property, right? Ex- just describe what it looks like. Yeah, it's a, it's a hill. It's about 360 feet above uh, sea level. And the main site is about one acre uh, that has a plaza. It has ramps. It has stone chambers. It has a whole network of underground storm drains that were built by the original builders. And it has um, um, a, a courtyard area also surrounded by stone structures. And these stone structures are built uh, with slabs of stone. They have stone roofs. And no mortar was used in the original construction, and so it's what we call dry stone construction. And the stones were actually uh, stripped from the bedrock. The bedrock does come up in layers. It is foliated. And um, the main site, we believe, was a ceremonial center, and it's surrounded by about 110 acres of land that contains stone walls, other structures, and uh, walls that actually have a shape of uh, kind of a serpentine shape to them and the standing stones that are astronomically aligned with the sun, moon, and stars. Um, We think it's ceremonial. We don't believe it's a habitat site. And it does have resemblances to many of the 50,000 megalithic sites that are located in Western Europe. So our site really does look like some of the stone structures in Western Europe, but not particularly like Stonehenge, which is actually very, very unique in its uh, shape, you know, the design of it. And the rocks, New Hampshire, of course, is the granite state. So I'm presuming that these stones are granite? That's correct. Yeah, we are the granite state, and it is built out of granite. It has a lot of quartz in it. Uh, There's quartz crystal found on the hill and mica and feldspar, but it is a granite. Uh, The whole hilltop is basically bedrock. And 4,000 years ago, it was a pretty exposed bedrock. Today, there's forest and the soil on top of it. But it was a big bald hill, and they were able to uh, extract these stones by coring these large stones, some of them up to uh, 14 tons. And then they would transport them and then use them in the construction of the, of the structures. And this is a very controversial uh, a site for some. Some anthropologists and archaeologists have weighed in and said this isn't that old. It, there's a, a, a story that it was constructed by a shoemaker back in the 19th century. Can you tell, what is that story all about? Yeah, there's three basic uh, theories, if you will. Uh, the shoemaker one, people say he was a farmer, but he was a fifth-generation gen- shoemaker. Um, built the site. The other one was Native Americans. And the third one would be old world people coming to the new world before the time of Columbus. But uh, the Patty family came. Um, there were five generations of shoemakers that came from England. Those are Richard, Peter, Seth, Seth, and Jonathan. Um, and um, it was the um, 
the grandson of Peter, Seth Patty, who actually bought a piece of the hill, but that didn't really include the main site back in 1734. And 10 years later, he bought another section of the hill that included the site. Sometime after 1750, they built a house on a section of this main site. Um, and then uh, after that, uh, his son named Seth might have occupied the hilltop in that particular house. And then Jonathan, we talk a lot about Jonathan. And he had two sons and four daughters, and he's given a lot of credit. People think that he built it. But if you look at the site, it looks nothing like a farm or like an early settlement. Um, I've lived on a farm up in Vermont for three years, and I was surrounded by farms when I grew up in Derry, New Hampshire, and they look nothing like this construction. And there's no tool marks on the original quarried stones. So the stones are actually extracted from the bedrock, and then they were shaped or dressed using a technique called percussion flaking. It's been described as making an uh, arrowhead, but on a multi-ton sca uh, scale. So they're actually striking the stone with stone to shape it, and then they use these for roof slabs, wall slabs, uh, a stone we call a sacrificial table that weighs 9,000 pounds, and then all the stones that are part of the drainage system. Uh, and there's carvings on the site, too, uh, carvings to the bedrock for drainage, as well as carvings of like a deer carving, an arrow carving. And there's been some other carvings that have been attributed to uh, old world inscriptions like Phoenician, Libyan, and Celtic. Um, but so I don't think it's a historic site or a colonial or post-colonial site. I think it's a very ancient ceremonial site. And again, it does have some very strong resemblance to Western European sites. But it's only one site out of about 800 uh, from, uh, say, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia going down into the mid-Atlantic states. And a site can consist of one chamber, or as in a case in Stonington, Connecticut, there's a lot of structures that look like our site, but there are 8,000 features in that one town of uh, Stonington. And that's something kind of new to us. We only learned of that particular site about two years ago. So 8,000 features, chambers, 400 serpentine walls, standing stones that align with the sun, moon, and stars, perch stones, balance stones, rocking stones, um, and again, uh, even windows, beautiful stone windows built in the stone walls uh, with lintels in them. It's kind of hard to describe, but if you have a stone wall and you have these beautiful windows in it, you know, what purpose would that serve for a shoemaker? And we have 11 of them on our site. Uh, we just discovered those in the last year, actually, so it's a relatively new find. We think the spirit windows are soul holes, as they call them. Uh, Martha's Vineyard even has them down in Cape Cod. The saint has some structures and some of these, these windows in the walls. And but they would serve no purpose for a farmer or a shoemaker, actually. Right. Uh, and for, for, th for those who subscribe to the idea that, that this is uh, would be a hoax if it was built by uh, this the shoemaker, wouldn't... Um, you know, wouldn't they be able to to carbon date it? Uh, wouldn't wouldn't there be a a paper trail? Maybe some mention of it made, uh, you know, in a local newspaper or something. There must be way a, a way of of pinpointing or let's say, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm struggling here. Sorry. There must be a way uh, to to verify whether that place, that, that, that stone uh, artifact was there um, in the 17th, 18th, 19th century. Yeah, exactly. And, and we, um, yeah, we have done a lot of research, and that research began 80 years ago in 1937 by a gentleman named Malcolm, uh, Malcolm Pearson and William Goodwin. And um, they worked on the site 
they basically cleaned a lot of the brush and a lot of debris, and then they began excavating and doing some restoration of some of the structures. But, yes, there should be a way of, uh, I mean, there's no historical uh, record of Patty family, you know, the shoemakers building this. And when Patty uh, inherited the land in 1802 from his mother, his father had passed away. He was actually involved with the Revolutionary War, Seth Jr., and he died around 17, I think 1778 roughly. And about 20, uh, about 24 years later, he inherits the site. And a lot of people think Jonathan is the one that built the whole site. But, you know, why would a shoemaker or even if and he had uh, domesticated animals, we know from his tax record, why would anybody spend the time building anything that would take years to quarry the stones and build these structures, which really no, would serve no purpose for a shoemaker or for a farmer, in fact, you know, anything like that. And it doesn't resemble any colonial or post-colonial construction. But uh, back in the 1930s, there was a stump next to a chamber, and it was rotted. And they estimated its age something like 1650 or something like that. 1967, they were actually found, they found a piece of root that had grown through the north wall of the structure we call the Chamber in Ruins. And that was carbon dated to 1690. So that put it, puts it back about uh, 50 years before the Patty family even arrived on the hill. And so you don't build a structure around the tree. The tree grows through the structure. So this piece of root was dated uh, to 1690 A.D. In 1969, they were excavating in that same area, but they went down lower. They went down about 30 inches, and they found the strata, the various layers of soil undisturbed next to this wall. And they eventually uh, they found charcoal. And the charcoal was sent to Geochrome Laboratories in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And the result came back that was about 3,000 years old. Um, in 1971, they excavated further uh, in a little bit lower level, and they found more charcoal, and they dated that to almost 4,000 years old, plus or minus about 200 years. Below that, they found the bedrock had been quarried. Just as we suspected, they were lifting up layers of bedrock. So the first thing that happened was the bedrock was extracted from that area, then the wall was built, and the chamber was you know, constructed with its roof and everything, and then soil very slowly deposited there. And in that mix of charcoal, they found a hammer stone, a rubbing stone, a stone scraper, and little stone spallings. When you uh, strike these stones to shape them or dress them, you get little flakes of stone that come off, again, like shaping an arrowhead or a spear point and in that percussion flaking technique. And they found all those little flakes of stone all in that undisturbed, you know, um, all the stratigraphy was still there. There was no mixing of soil. Nobody had disturbed it. And so they were able to show that the quarrying took place first, the wall was built, and then the soil deposited. And then we have these two charcoal samples from two different eras. And then we have stone tools that are in that mix, too. And we did actually about uh, 12 carbon dating. So we did three in that area, and then we did nine more in different areas of the site. But the oldest on the main site was about 4,000 years old, and that was 1971. Um, so we have stone tools, utensils, you know. Um, we also have the carbon datings. And then 1973 to 1978, we surveyed the site, the professional surveyor. They were doing the astronomical alignments in the walls. And that data was sent to the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And the results came back 40 years ago this year, in 1978. And they said if these stones were used for astronomical purposes, they would work about 1800 B.C., plus or minus about 200 years uh, but they don't quite work today because your tilt is very slowly changing. They call it the obliquity. It's the angle between the Earth's tilt and its orbital plane around the sun. So that's a 41,000-year cycle. And then you have precession, which is 26,000 years, and that changes the pole star and the seasons, actually. So the carbon dating of 1971 and 
seven years later, 1978, uh, the astronomical date, they both put it back to, but they agree, about 4,000 years old. Right, so, about 2000 yeah. BC. Dennis Stone yeah, is uh, right. Dennis yeah. Stone is with us, the curator of America's yeah. Stonehenge, which is uh, also known as Mystery Hill in uh, mm-hmm. Salem, New Hampshire. We'll take a time out, come back, and continue to delve into this remarkable uh, piece of uh, ancient America right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. We are back with Dennis Stone, curator of America Stonehenge, Mystery Hill. How did you become curator? Yeah, uh, well, through my dad. My dad actually first got involved with this from 1955. It was a radio show, just like we're doing right now. And he had never heard of this place. He lived about eight miles away. And um, in 1950, about 1953, he was up in Canada, actually, up in Newfoundland. where He was in the Coast Guard, and he was right near where the Vikings, uh, not too far from where the Vikings uh, settlement is in Lonzo Meadow. He was always interested in the ancient past. And Unfortunately, he was a little bit too early because it wasn't until 1960 that they actually showed that the Vikings had indeed, you know, had a settlement up in the uh, in northern part of uh, Newfoundland. And um, so he was always interested in that. And he's listening to the show on a Friday night. It was called Yankee Yarns. Alton Hall Blackington was a talk show host. And instead of talking about politics or something like that, they were talking about this ancient site located in North Salem, New Hampshire. And it was kind of a surprise for him. And so it was probably... Uh, you know, an hour or two hour show and really get his interest. Uh, the following week, he's at a barbershop waiting to have his hair cut and he's looking at a magazine and he's op- and it's called New Hampshire Profile Magazine. It was from 1952. It had been sitting in the barbershop for three years, I guess. And he's just flipping through it. He sees a feature article all about these same stone ruins that he just heard on the radio show. Uh, the next weekend, he's at my aunt and uncle's house and they were over there uh, just socializing, playing cards with about maybe a dozen people. And he put the magazine on the counter and said, anybody ever hear of this place, you know? And because he was really taken by it. And everybody looked at it. Finally, me, an uncle uh, looked at it and said, yeah, that place is where he went 20 years ago in the 1930s. We used to go down there on a bicycle and picnic. That was when my aunt and uncle were dating. And my dad says, do you think you can find it? And they said, well, it's been quite a while, but maybe we can. So I think the following Sunday, they went down there. And they were able to find an old back road, and uh, eventually they found their way to the top of the hill in the site. And uh, my dad, you know, climbed underneath the chain link fence. They were basically trespassing. And he spent time inside the site. Uh, the other three, my aunt and uncle and my mom, just kind of stood outside because it was the fence was kind of uh, all locked up. And my dad came out a while later, and uh, he was just totally taken by the place. And he said, someday I'd like to uh, maybe own this place, open it to the public, and, you know, do some research on it. So it all began in 1955, and this year we're going to have our 60th anniversary when we open to the public. Uh, solstice, uh, June 20th or 21st of 1958. So, so then 
that was the first generation. I'm the second, and my son, Kelsey, he's kind of the third generation. My dad and son are both engineers. I was in the airlines for 35 years, so we all have full-time jobs. We do this kind of out of a passion for it, basically, on the side. So prior to your father buying the pro- property uh, and then opening it to the public several several years later, it was just sitting idly. One would think that it would um, be have, have been declared, I don't know, a United Nations heritage site or, or something. Why, why was it basically lost to the public for so long? Yeah, unfortunately, um, you know, history in, in our country, you know, is not taught too well anyway. I think it was taught better years ago than it is today. But um, because of the controversy, as you mentioned earlier, there was a lot of people that said, oh, it's just a bunch of rocks on a hill. Maybe Patty family built it. You know, maybe uh, Native Americans built it. But it should have got a lot more interest. You know, I mean, who spends time building this whole kind of, for what, you know, uh, <clears throat> some people call it a fall, you know, Patty's back in the 18, you know, 1840s, you know, 1830s. Why would they build something like this to open it up to the public as a tourist trap or something? There was no such thing back then, you know. I mean, tourism really didn't begin until like the Cod Railway went in in 1869 in New Hampshire. You know, that's when tourism kind of started. So in this area, there was no tourism, you know. So who you? Who were they trying to fool by building this? I have no clue. But people were very practical back then. They were just trying to make a living. The Patty family, he was a shoemaker. He took a, he actually took in the town paupers for a few years. The town, the poor people for about six years, we had the names of the poor people. He tried to supplement this income, and he was a tax collector for the town of Salem for a short period of time also. They were just trying to make a living, you know, um, support their family. So it's easy to say, oh, the Patty family had nothing better to do than build these thousands and thousands of feet of walls plus all these stone structures, you know. But you're right. It uh, Actually, in the 1950s, there was a, a group called the Early Sites Foundation. And that's one of the, that group was formed because of our site. And they actually were doing archaeology on the site in the mid-1950s when my dad first visited it. And going back to the 1930s, it was Mr. Goodwin who actually started the archaeology here. And then he died in 1950. He willed the site to Malcolm Pearson, one of the founding members of the Early Sites Foundation, and that group is one of the groups that was uh, that helped discover that site up in Canada, Lonzo Meadow. There was a husband and wife team, and then there was a National Geographic, but there was also the Early Sites Foundation. And one of the sons that went up there uh, with his father, with this group, to look at Lonzo Meadow, he actually found the little stone world uh, for spinning wool. And so he was, that little artifact is one of the artifacts that helped prove the Vikings are there, but you don't hear much about the Early Sites Foundation. That lasted for 10 years, and they did work on our site and about 15 other sites in New England that might be related to our site. They folded in 1964. They had members from Dartmouth College and from, I think, a couple other universities that were founding members. And when they passed, some of these members passed away. Like in 63, they lost a number of their members from, you know, they passed away. And then they decided to fold the group up. And my dad and Ed Boyd in 1964 started the New England Antiquities Research Association, which is now going, has been going strong for about 44 years. That's the group. They have members. Their president was Terry DeVoe. He recently... Uh, yeah, he's from Halifax, Canada. He's the first Canadian president. And so they're all over New England, Canada, and everywhere. So they're still doing research on these sites, including is, ours. Is there any <clears throat> possible <clears throat> connection between Lanzo Meadow, this <clears throat> Viking settlement in, in Newfoundland, uh, and and the artifact on, on Mystery Hill? Could Could it be a Viking settlement? That's a great question. And Mr. Goodwin, when he came here in 1937... And he put up the chain link fence. He bought 
20 acres of the property today. We have about 110, but he bought just the top part in the main site. He thought it was a Viking site, and he wrote uh, a couple different books. Uh, one was called The Truth About Leif Erikson, very interesting book. And then he, before he died, he put together a second book called The Ruins of Great Ireland and New England. He, he changed his mind very quickly from the Vikings because when he started uncovering the site, they weren't sawed houses. These were all stone structures with stone roofs, you know. And he decided it wasn't a Viking settlement, but he said, I think it's an Irish Colding Monk monastery, and it was built here. It was a refuge from the Vikings uh, going all over Europe, Lisbon, particularly Ireland. And these people were refugees from that coming into America, and they were trying to um, have you know, religious freedom and to kind of escape the Viking persecution. And some of the Viking sagas actually talk about uh, white robed men found, I think, in the Faroe Islands and then going across Iceland, Greenland, into the Baffin Islands and into the New World. So everywhere the Vikings went, they mentioned these white robed men. And so Goodwin thought it wasn't Viking after he initially did, but he thought it might be an Irish Calding Monk monastery. And he knew of about 15 different sites in New England. And he thought these might be places where these people were praying and they might have been, you know, uh, involved in Native Americans too. But it really doesn't look like a Viking settlement. And the dating now puts it back about 3,000 years older than the Lonzo Meadow. And they just found that second Viking site up in Canada, I think, last year at Point Rosie. They think that's the second Viking settlement in Newfoundland. And there's one in Baffin Islands, they believe, too, that was a boat repair station. So the Vikings are very interesting to us. But I think it's not a Viking settlement. I think it's a much older site. Right. Well, since um, the Vikings were sort of marauding and pillaging around, I think, the ninth century, uh, that would eliminate the the, uh, the possibility that these are Irish monk refugees fleeing the the Vikings. Um, But because of the similarity with other uh, sort of stone artifacts in, in Western Europe, what are the other possibilities? If it's if if we're going back 2000 BC, uh, and there are there is a similarity to these stone formations in in Western Europe. What other culture? What other civilization might it be? Hmm. Well, um, I've been up to Europe. Different, you know, I've been throughout quite a few places in Europe, and I've seen a lot of the similarities. Um, uh, the megalithic builders of Europe, starting in the the Neolithic going into the Bronze Age, and then by the time of the Iron Age, they really kind of stopped building these uh, some of these 50,000 megalithic sites, you know, and then they began building a lot of forts. Um, but, um, our, I mean, it, the, the type of writing that's been found um, in North, Central, and South America, Old World, uh, mockings seem to be Phoenician, Libyan, and Celtic markings, and we have all three that have been found on our site, according to Dr. Barry Fell from Harvard University. And he was the president of the Epigraphic Society. I think he had about 1,200 members. He was at Harvard University for about 20 years, originally from New Zealand, uh, went to school in England, and ended up in in North America at at Harvard. And he felt that um, these people coming across from the Iberian Peninsula because of the similarity in the structures and also the inscriptions, the, uh, the type of inscription kind of matches the Iberic inscriptions more than, like the Phoenicians came out of the Middle East, the Phoenician coast, but they migrated across the Mediterranean and set up 50, 50 trading colonies, you know, um, in Sicily, right across, you know, Malta, Beer uh, and um, Carthage is one of them. And they're in Spain and in the West Coast of Africa. And he thought they were coming over from Spain and Portugal and part of, I guess, southern France, possibly, into North America. And he said this style of script is what I can 
you know, that exist over in Spain and Portugal. At our site, we found the, he said it was Libyan, Phoenician, and Celtic that was found on our site. You've, seen, Maine, you've uh, seen writing uh, on the wall, carved into the yeah, stone wall? Actually, yeah, actually, yeah. There's um, the uh, Chamber in Ruins back in 1964. They were doing some, um, they're trying to do some, the big roof slab that weighs about, seven or eight thousand pounds fell into the structure and it's it's kind of blocking the floor and anything under so in 64 they're going to try to get the stone out of there and kind of restore the walls and maybe put the roof back on they didn't accomplish that but when they're cleaning the uh around that big slab that fell into the and the lintel stone fell in also it's about a thousand pound lintel stone that collapsed in there uh well they're in there cleaning trying to prepare it for restoration they found um three stones they were kind of a triangular shape and they were put on display in our museum back in 64. One was found in 67, so two in 64, one in 67. And they were put on display as unknown markings. And Barry Fell first visited the site in 1975. And he, he took these stones back to Arlington, Massachusetts, where he lived. And he worked on trying to decipher them. And his translation was one of them was Iberian Punic. And it said this, this uh, structure... He, was a temple dedicated to Baal on behalf of the Canaanites. The other inscription was Libyan, but it was only a partial translation because a stone was damaged. And then the third one appears to be some sort of just um, artwork on a stone. He said it looks Western European. So that was his, his interpretation. The Celtic Ogham was found at a later date, but it's found in Vermont. It's found all the way from um, Little Manana Island near Monhegan Island, which is close to Booth Bay Harbor, Maine, all the way down to Brazil. There's a stone down there found in 1872 by some slaves who were actually doing some work, and they found the stone. It's called the Paraheba Stone, and it's it, and that's been translated as Phoenician. So all the way from Brazil, all the way up to Maine, and then west. I'm trying to think how far west. I think almost out to the west coast. They have found Libyan, uh, Celtic, and Phoenician markings. So we either have a lot of misinterpretations. We have a lot of stones that are hoaxes. Uh, we have people visiting from the old world to the new world, you know, coming across the Atlantic Ocean uh, well before Columbus or the Vikings. Dennis, stay put. We'll take another time out, come back and continue to discuss a mystery hill in Salem, New Hampshire, a.k.a. America's Stonehenge. Right back with more. Stay with us. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Dennis Stone is with us. He is the curator of Mystery Hill, which is in uh, Salem, New Hampshire. If you ever get down that way, make sure you, you stop by. Uh, it, um, it houses or it contains uh, a tremendous 
uh, artifact known as America's Stonehenge. And uh, there is some controversy controversy as to who built it uh, and how old it is. But then again, there's great controversy about who built the actual Stonehenge and actually how old that is. So uh, I guess in that respect, it, it mirrors Stonehenge uh, in, in several ways. You were talking about writing uh, or inscriptions um, carved into the stone, and of course we're talking about granite. Uh, one of them, uh, one of them was deciphered or translated as sort of a dedication to the temple, to, uh, or this is this location is a temple to Baal, um, who was of course uh, worshipped by the Canaanites. Do you think that's a hoax? I, I don't know. I think I mean you know who would have done that? You know the Patty, the shoemaker, you know, or his father or his grandfather, you know. Uh, up here making Libyan, Phoenician, and, you know, Celtic mockings up here. I don't think so, you know. Um, and the uh, the letters do look correct, you know. Uh, and at that time, back in the uh, 1800s, and they came here, like I say, in the late 17 and 1700s, the Patty family, you know, some of these were not translatable. They had People hadn't translated this yet, you know. Uh, so how would they be able to put together a sentence without knowing how to write the script, you know, back in the late 1700s or early 1800s? And there is technology today. They can look at these mockings with scanning electron microscopes. They can look at the weathering patterns and, you know, with the actual, you know, where they actually carve the mockings. They look at like uh, micas, biotites, uh, pyrites, and they can look at, you know, under high magnification, they can see the weathering patterns and they can tell you, look, this, this has been... Um, you know, inscribed, there's a lot of weathering here. It's been centuries upon centuries, you know, not 200 years or whatever, but, you know, they can't give you an exact amount, but they can tell you whether it was done recently as a hoax or whether it was been sitting there for maybe a few thousand years. And so this is kind of a new technology. Um, And also there's a way of dating soil next to stone walls, whether it's a structure or just a stone wall. It's called optically stimulated luminescence. You don't need charcoal. Uh, so when you do carbon dating, you got to find the charcoal first. Hopefully, it's undisturbed soil, and you know, in the right location next to a wall, like we did. But it, all you have to do is find dirt, and the dirt has to be undisturbed. And hopefully, it's many inches deep, and you get a core down near the bottom. And they can put it through all this different process, and, and then they use lasers, and they can tell you when that soil saw the light of day. You know how many years ago? So if a wall was built a few thousand years ago, and they get down near the bottom of it, and nothing's ever disturbed that soil, they can say, "Look, this soil. The last time I saw the light of day was three thousand years ago, or whatever date it is. So it was not built two hundred or three hundred years ago." So this new technology may be very useful because we have thousands of feet of wall. If we find the right place, you know, the negative side of it is a thousand dollars per sample. I think, oh my! And you have to have several baseline. So they did the Upton Chamber, which is a chamber that Malcolm Pearson Stanley bought in 1920s. That, that's how he got involved with this. It's in Upton, Massachusetts. It looks like a passage grave of Europe. And they did, in uh, 2011, they did uh, some testing on it. Some of our own our people that work on our site were down there doing it. And the date came back. And the Steptic Sale was built two or 300 years ago as a root cellar or, you know, some colonial, post-colonial construction. It's not more than two or 300 years old. And the date came back on it. And the minimum date on it from the six different uh, cores they, they took and sent to a laboratory, and it was several thousand dollars, was around, I'm going to say around 1450, just before Columbus. So it wasn't, you know, built in 1800 or 1700. Sometime in 1400 makes it pre- and it was earlier than that that it was built. That's like a minimum date. So sometime before Columbus, somebody was building up in chambers. So it's not something that's colonial or post-colonial, as all these skeptics say. You know? It's remarkable. But it, more te- 
if it's yeah. if if it was built by the Canaanites uh, as a temple to Baal, I mean this this would have to be considered one of the greatest archaeological finds in America, I would think. It's been called that. Yeah, it's it, it, potentially one of the most important sites in North America. Uh, it's possibly one of the oldest and largest constructions of its type. But as I mentioned earlier in the show, there's probably about 800 sites throughout the Northeast. But this is the biggest complex within a given area, say, of about 110 acres. And you're right, it could be, it would really change the history books or prehistory books, if you will. I'll say. Um, Listen, I've got a. I've got. Yeah. Sorry, Dennis, I have to take another time out. When we come back, we'll oh. we'll talk about that. I want to talk about the sacrificial table as well, and we'll get to those standing stones and how they line up to the, I believe it's the autumnal equinox. Dennis Stone, the curator of America's Stonehenge, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Keeping a watchful eye on the new world order. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. The owners of The System are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Dennis Stone is with us. Uh, is there a, a website? Do people need to uh, to uh, register to um, a reserve a place to come to see the to, to see the uh, the the, um, the artifact, or they just show up? And how does that work? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Richard. No, we never really get that busy uh, on the summer solstice. So one year, we about fifteen years ago, we had the Travel Channel here filming, and we had a. Uh, music of uh, the Andes Inca Sun playing and about a thousand people but even then we didn't need reservations um, but it's uh, their website is stonehengeusa.com and it has a lot of different information it has an email that you know people can ask us questions and a phone number to call us if necessary and it lists some of the activities as you mentioned some of the astronomical alignments coming up and in the winter we do snowshoeing you know events and stuff like that so so it's stonehengeusa.com it's if you're interested in looking at that, and it has uh, quite a bit of information on that website. All right, so let's talk about again the Canaanites. Um, if they were, if it was the Canaanites who built this temple to Baal, which uh, I guess from a, a Christian perspective, Baal would be Satan, uh, would be a sort of a demonic uh, entity or a deity. Uh, the sacrificial table. What do you think was taking place there then? Yeah, it's a million dollar question. It, it's about uh, the table is approximately nine feet by six feet and about a foot thick. It was moved about 40 feet from its quarry socket. No metal tool markings are in the quarry socket or on the stone, which is very important. So, again, it demonstrates it was a Stone Age technology used to extract it and shape it. It has a groove that looks rectangular. And two, two years ago, I thought it was a rectangle. Uh, but actually, it's trapezoidal in shape. Uh, the groove is very deep. Um, it's not shallow. Some people have said that this table could be a wine press, you know, or a cider press, or a um, a limestone for making soap. A limestone usually about 36 inches across, 40 inches, um, about an inch thick, and I could actually pick one up. But this table is about 9,000 pounds, and I can't pick that up. Uh, a cider press can be bigger, but usually made out of wood, 
and usually have all sorts of metal, you know, metal and wood, like the, the screw and everything to help squeeze the apples. And this table is set down between what we call the oracle chamber, which is the biggest structure on the site, and the ramp, and then there's two monoliths on either side of the table. You cannot get a wagon with a horse down there bringing down the apples and then crush them and take out the product. You know, you can't get an animal. I can just barely get my little ATV in there to get the leaves out each while when we're trying to clean the place. But you can't get a wagon in there, and you can't take away all the pulp or whatever it is when you squeeze apples. And there's no archaeological evidence. But that's been one of the one of the arguments. Oh, it's a cider press, you know. But there's no archaeology, and there's no history of it whatsoever associating this stone with with a cider press or live stone for making soap, like the ivory soap factory. Uh, the oracle chamber is attached to it with this horizontal tube that's six feet long. And it reminds me of what I saw in, in uh, Delphi in Greece when I went there on a honeymoon back in 85. And then we went to Malta about 20 years ago, and they had the same thing. The oracle tubes were a priest or a shaman would yell through this tube. People would hear this voice, and, you know, they think a spirit or, or somebody talking to them, you know, like a whatever, you know, uh, speaking to them. And that's the way this arrangement is. Um, the table is large enough for a person or an animal. It, it's sitting on four legs. And um, there is a stone about 75 miles uh, southwest of here down in uh, Shutesbury, Mass. And it has stone chambers somewhat like our site, not as big, though. And it looks like a person on the same bell shape. Our table is actually a bell shape to it. And it looks like a person stretched out on it and laying on the back with kind of like a, something around their neck. It's a raised it's a raised carving or an anaglyph, or what they call a carving and relief kind of, and it has a circle by the left leg, and that's exactly where that runoff is on our groove. Our groove is kind of, it's actually trapezoidal shape and has a little runoff, and if you lay it on your back on that table by your left leg right below the ground, there's a cutout in the bedrock where like a vase could sit to collect the fluid, if you will. And that, that, stone, that stone shape has been used for the New Moran Keeper's Research Association's logo. So if you go to NERA.org, you'll see that logo. It looks like somebody visited our site, went back home 75 miles, and they actually carved this maybe as kind of a memorial to what they saw up on this site. It it's maybe sounds a little far-fetched, but it looks exactly like our table. And it looks like somebody on our table on this particular carving, you know. Well, if and it was a temple, you know, if it was a temple to yep. Baal, there's, yeah. <laughs> it, it wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't be unusual to expect human sacrifice to have taken place there. They did. They did. They sacrificed a lot of children, and they did yes. also adults too. Yes. At some of their fifty different cities, Tyre, Sidon, you know, and then right across Carthage, right into the western part of Africa, they were doing sacrifice. They kind of gruesome, and sometimes they sacrificed a couple thousand. I think I read one place they sacrificed 3,000 people when Hiram, Hiram of Kier died in Kier. Mm. 3,000 people were sacrificed, and I went, oh, my God, you know. So they did do sacrifice, so that's not a question, you know. But did they do it over here, and is this site something that they built, you know? Well, that's the question, you know. One would expect also then to find if there were, if this was an active temple or whatever it was, one mm-hmm. would expect to mm-hmm. find, I don't know, skeletal remains, clay pots, something to indicate that this place was inhabited. Have you found we anything? Have found ceramics. Yeah, ceramics have been found here and uh, beautiful, you know, mostly pottery shards, you know, or, or, you know, fragments. But some of it looks Western European, the corded ware or the groove ware. And a couple of our archaeologists looked at it and said, this looks very much like some of the grooved ware of Western Europe. Um, but bones, in our soil here is very acidic in New England, 
And bones usually dissolve back into the soil after just a few hundred years. Uh, I know our uh, president of the Hampshire Archaeological Society has been with us since 19, 1989. And she goes, yeah, in New England, no, you might find bones sometimes up to a couple thousand years old, but that's rather unusual. Most of the bones will, you know, decay because of the acid in the soil and the weathering conditions. They don't last long. But if Mr. Goodwin, 80 years ago, didn't clean out some of these structures so thoroughly, they could actually get in there today, take that soil, send it to a laboratory, and look at the chemical traces, maybe like calcium, potassium, and some other chemicals. That might say, like the east-west chamber looks like the gallery graves in Europe. They're found in Holland, they're found in northwest Ireland, and they're also in France, which I saw. They always run east and west, just like our chamber, 20 to 60 feet length, and it's out of true north, and they're used as burial tombs. Aviha uh, looks like the wedge tombs of Ireland and also in Spain, and they're all facing southwest. Well, the V-hut at our, our site faces southwest. It's the only structure that faces that direction, and the shape of it is like a wedge. And they were used as tombs in Ireland. I visited those, and I took a picture with my dad. I said, this looks just like our V-hut, the same shape, the same size, and the same orientation. Ireland, by the way, has about 2,000 megalithic sites, so there's... You know, you can hmm. spend quite a bit of time. I spent a week there looking at many of them. But uh, And then there's other structures on a site that resemble some of the ones in Europe that are used as tombs. But the problem here is the conditions aren't good for preserving bones. They, they dissolve, they go back into the earth, and if Mr. Goodwin hadn't removed that soil 80 years ago, the technology today, we probably... You know, on the sacrificial table, if it was used for that, there's a thing called protein analysis. And if you have a spear point or an arrow and it went into a person or animal and blood did into a microfissure in that in that weapon, or maybe in the sacrificial table, a microfissure, they can extract that material and it can go back 10,000 years and they can tell you whether it's human or animal and then the type of animal. So I always wondered, is there something on that table, even though it's been weathered maybe perhaps thousands of years, if there was a sacrifice 4,000 years ago on it, it's been under heavy weather, so, you know, it kind of erases some of the evidence. Right. But if they could get into a fissure in that that stone, they, they have to know where to look. You know, there's a lot of little cracks in that, on the top of that sacrificial table. Send that to a laboratory, and if there's any material in there, they could tell you, yes, it was used for sacrifice, and no, we don't have any evidence. So there is technology today for that, too, which is, which is kind of neat. You know? It is. It's fascinating. <clears throat> uh, we just have a few yeah. minutes. It's a few minutes uh, remain. So talk to me about these uh, standing stones that align mm-hmm. with, is it the summer equinox or is it the autumnal equinox? It's both. It's actually the summer solstice, winter solstice, spring and fall equinox. They're called the quarter days. But we also have the cross-quarter days. Those are the days in between. On both sides of the Atlantic, whether it's Native American or Old World, May Day, uh, you know, May Day, Beltane. Uh, we used to have the May Fairs. Then you have August 1st, which is Loch uh, Nassar, I believe it's called. Um, it, it's Old Norwegian Holiday, and it's Lamas, I think they call it. But we all know about the next one, which is um, November 1st, All Saints Day, the day before is Halloween. That's a Celt- These are all Celtic holidays, by the way, but they're also at sites like Mesa Verde in Colorado. And then February 1st is um, Candlemas on the Catholic holiday, but it's also near Groundhog's Day, and it's called Imblod. So those are the days that the seasons actually begin, those cross-quarter days. And we have the sunrise and set over those. We have the sunrise and sunset over the spring and fall equinox and the winter solstice, summer solstice. We also have the 18-and-a-half-year lunar cycle, um, so the moon goes through a cycle over 18 and a half years. It's called the lunar major north and south, the lunar minor north and south. Stonehenge has that. A lot of people don't know that. Karnak in France has that. Many of the 50,000 megalithic sites 
in Europe, particularly some of the stone circles in Scotland, had that do track the lunar cycle. And a lot of ancient cultures used the moon, the moon for time instead of, the, you know, the year with the sun. But we have alignments with, um, with stars. And in 1978, when we got that result back from the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, they said not only do alignments work about 1800 B.C. plus and minus about 200 years, but you have 23 star alignments. And we don't even, uh, I'm sorry, 24. We know about the north wind, the true north wind with Claris today and 4,000 years ago, the star was Thuban. And it's in Draco, which is the serpent. And we do have some serpentine walls on our site. We think we have about 12 serpentine walls shaped like snakes. But 4,000 years ago, back to about 6,000 years ago, the Earth's uh, north polar axis is pointed at Thuban, which is one of the stars of Draco, the dragon or serpent. And so that was where many people thought the spirit might go, you know, towards heaven. So that was a very important part of the uh, heavens. Right. So, um, so we have star alignments, we have the sun alignments, and we have the moon alignments. And there's 26 alignments, not counting those star alignments. So some archaeologists and scholars said, oh, that's just a coincidence. So we've got 26 ah. coincidences that work. About you know what I mean? The equinoxes still work today, but the solstices and the lunar alignments won't work unless you go back about 1800 uh, B.C., right. almost 4,000 years ago. Right. Well, now, so that's a coincidence, too. You know? Sure, apparently. <laughs> yeah. So, but did the Canaanites, <laughs> did the Canaanites, uh, were they interested in the, the various star alignments and equinoxes? Would they do, would that be something they would incorporate into one of their temples to Baal? Yeah, they do. And I've just been reading a whole book of, uh, about, um, actually, it's one of my dad's library, and I'm reading his whole library. He's got books from 1955. I mean, he's just tons of books, and one of them's all about the Phoenicians, and it talks about some of those 50 cities that they set up for trade, and how they would set up alignments with the sun, you know, uh, sun god Baal, or Baal, or Belos, they had, you know, and the Celts, actually, it was Bel, and the, the Canaanites, or Phoenician, was Baal, you know, it's in the Bible, as you mentioned, the same god, you know. Oh, the Celtics um, worship, did I didn't know the Celts worship yeah, Baal. Yeah. Ah, interesting. Yeah, they call it the Bell or, you know, Bellos, you know. Um, but it's the same God. Yeah, because we have the Celtic writing. It actually, we do have, and one of the stones is Bell. It's one line down for Oakham and two lines, which is B, L, and you have to insert the vowel. They were, it was all consonants, no vowels in it. Just like the original Phoenician alphabet was 22 letters, it was all right. consonants, no vowels. It Den- was the, Ro- uh, the Greek Romans that changed that, you know. Right. Dennis, this is this is fascinating. People have to get down to uh, to Salem, New Hampshire, yeah. to Mystery Hill, and and check out uh, America Stonehenge. What's the major? What's the the the, the uh, highway that uh, goes through there? Yeah, uh, it's Route 93. It goes from Boston right up into New Hampshire, or Exit Three. So really easy out of Boston or out of Manchester, New Hampshire. Both have good airports. Or if you're driving down from Canada, probably down Route 93, Exit Three. You know, we're about four miles from the highway, so uh, very easy access. And the roads have been all redone out here, so it's it's easy to drive on them now. Well, people really need to come and see this place for themselves because yeah. it's uh, yeah. it sounds remarkable. And all of this nonsense about a, a shoemaker building this in the in the 18th century, <laughs> uh, yeah, that that makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> Dennis, thank you so much for sharing this with me. Well, thank you so much, Richard, and thank your audience, and I uh, hope everybody comes down and takes a look at it, and I'd like to see you come down sometime, too. I used to go to Toronto all the time when I was flying, so, but um, thank you so much for having me on tonight. My pleasure. Dennis Stone, curator of America Stonehenge, and again, the website is StonehengeUSA.com. 
All right, time to dim the lights. Next week, Victor Vigiani, Stu Bundy from MUFON, and Chris Stiles, co-author of Dark Object. This is the Shag Harbor book. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.